Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the IFG's Deputy Director and this week's presenter. It's been an incredible week in Westminster. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court ruled the government's policy to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda was unlawful, leaving Rishi Sunak's plan and his pledge to stop small boat crossings in tatters, or does it? We'll discuss the Supreme Court verdict and Sunak's response. Suella Braverman, the biggest loser in this week's dramatic reshuffle, is definitely not going quietly, with the former Home Secretary bowing out with an explosive letter. So how much of a headache could Braverman end up being for the Prime Minister? We'll talk about it here. And then there's the biggest winner in the reshuffle, one David, now Lord Cameron. I don't think anyone saw this one coming, but will our new Foreign Secretary, the first former Prime Minister to return to the Cabinet in 50 years, end up being a wise appointment by Rishi Sunak? All that to come. Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow and Number 10 Veteran, is here with us again. Hi, Jill. Hi, Emma. And Rhys Klein, IFG Associate Director and our resident immigration policy expert, is with us too. Hi, Rhys. Hi, Emma. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Francis Elliott, editor of The House magazine and the first biographer of David Cameron. Hi, Francis. Hi. So we'll come on to the reshuffle later and to Cameron's return, but your book, Cameron, The Rise of the New Conservative, it was published way back in 2007 and it promised to reveal more about the man behind the spin. Did he turn out as you expected? (laughs) Well, we actually updated it twice after that. Uh, He revealed himself not all at once, but over time. He is an interesting, I mean, there was depth to him. I think it's unfair to say that, you know, it's all shallow. Was it as I expected? Ultimately, yes. I'm going to say ultimately there was nothing in his makeup that that totally surprised me or made me rethink. I had thought when I first met him for a lunch, he was you know an interesting, plausible, new sort of conservative, but but not. A, but it wasn't going to remake either the party or politics more widely. And I think that's pretty much how it turned out. Interesting. Okay, we might pick that up a bit more later. So let's start with Rwanda. Reese. in short, what happened? What was the Supreme Court verdict? Well, the heart of it was the Supreme Court found the Rwanda policy in its current form to be unlawful. That is because it found a legitimate risk of what's called refoulement. That's to say, a risk that the asylum seekers sent from the UK to Rwanda might subsequently be sent wrongly to their country of origin, where they could face torture, persecution and other wrong treatment. So Supreme Court has said no. What's Sunak saying he'll do now? Well, he's keen to get across that he's got a cunning plan. So he came out with a few prongs to this yesterday. Uh, He says they have been negotiating a new treaty with Rwanda that would strengthen the memorandum of understanding that currently exists. And he's going to bring forward what he's calling emergency legislation. The heart of that, it seems, will be an attempt to overcome that risk of refoulement, to assure that asylum seekers sent to Rwanda wouldn't subsequently be sent back to their country of origin wrongly. Um, But it is worth stressing that all of that takes a lot of time. I'm sure we'll come on to that in a moment, but it puts it much closer to the election and, as ever, the devil's in the detail. So we'll wait to see what the substance of the legislation brings. And why didn't Sunak go down, why didn't we go down the treaty route to begin with? I mean, I think everybody's been saying for a long time that the memorandum of understanding isn't worth the paper it's written on. We were always going to end up here. Why has it turned out like this? 
it's a question that's been raised throughout the process, including by select committees that have scrutinised it. The answer the government gave was that the memorandum of understanding was sufficient to assure the behaviour of both sides and that they wanted the flexibility that a memorandum of understanding would give. But of course, the judgment of the Supreme Court yesterday shows the problems of that. And if the government now thinks the answer is to look to a treaty, the question it begs is why haven't they been doing that over the last 18 months? Francis, what do you make of all this? <laughs> it's bewildering to me how they have got themselves snookered in this way. I mean, it's not as if any of them, you know, any of this hasn't been foreseen for some time. And I think it just affirms in my mind that Rishi Sunak just cannot get off the canvas. He had about three hours of good news on the inflation figures uh, before the fist came down. And, 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 you know, if that judgment had gone the other way, you could just start to see the beginnings of a vibe shift. Horrible expression that that is, but, you know, uh, something that it in Westminster, at least, perhaps that's it. He's turned the corner. It's, things are going his way, but it didn't. So, yes, a mess entirely of their own making, which was foreseen and indeed forewarned. Just sticking on this inflation story as well, because this is the bit that I find really hard to get my head around as well. You know, he he had some good news. He hit his inflation target, but then that gets completely overshadowed by the Rwanda story. Is that just bad luck in terms of timing or is it bad politics that it couldn't bank a win on cost of living that more people arguably care about that's going to be the factor in the general election? I don't think he's responsible for either of those timings. Uh, I think it is just rotten luck, but... You know, it keeps on piling up like that, and ill luck sometimes attracts ill luck. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, on the on the on the narrow point, he was not responsible and could not be responsible for the timing. They saw it a, a week ago. I, I remember speaking to somebody in the Treasury saying, "Oh my goodness, the Supreme Court's just on the day that we're probably going to get some good news." So, so they knew it was coming. Could they have done more with the three hours that they got? Maybe, but ultimately, the news cycle is the news cycle. Jill Sunak said that he won't allow a foreign court to block these flights. Can he? Will he? Is that just a, a rhetorical bone for the Conservative right? Well, the key thing about yesterday's judgment was it wasn't anything very much to do with foreign courts blocking Indeed. anything. His problem was in the British courts and their interpretation of his obligations under British law. So uh, that's down the down the track. We will see. I mean, you know, at some point it looks as though he may have to have a row about the European Convention on Human Rights. He may even want a row with some of the party, but it'd be very interesting to see what that does because he's now got himself a Home Secretary who is much less gung-ho about leaving the ECHR than his predecessor. It'd be also very interesting. I saw David Cameron tweeting out very supportively on the importance of tackling small boats. So he avoided a Cameron resignation on Wednesday over anything. But it'd be very interesting to see whether David Cameron would be at all on side with something that would suggest that the UK was putting himself putting itself in a club if it did go towards uh, withdrawing from ECHR that, as James Cleverly pointed out, you know, a club to which the other members are Russia and Belarus. So not a very attractive proposition if you're a new foreign secretary. We'll have to see how this one plays out. I think on this question of why did they not appear to sort of prejudge this, governments, I think, always find it quite difficult to prepare for losses. They don't like to give the impression, and we know that this government leaks like a sieve, they don't like to give the impression that they actually think they're going to lose something to do, do that amount of due diligence. And I think they probably weren't quite aware of how they would lose, which is the other thing, because clearly one of the things about waiting is you see what grounds the court give 
against you and then you have to react to that so it wasn't that it was incompatible with you know international obligations it was domestic obligations so the government's trying to remedy that through this treaty route and also through changing UK law to make it clear that the UK government regards Rwanda as safe. Rhys, is there enough time to, to do what Sunak is suggesting and, and how are the Lords going to play into this? Are they going to try and block it? Well, this question of timing, I think, is is maybe the most interesting that came out of yesterday's developments because, as you hinted there, the new legislation may well get bogged down in the Lords no matter how quickly they try to expedite it. Particularly difficult because of the point we are in the parliamentary cycle as well. And then whatever they manage to get through Parliament will similarly face legal tests in UK courts and maybe under international legal obligations after that as well. So I think despite the tone that Sunak tried to use in the press conference yesterday, what that has done is it's put it onto the question of what will be in the manifesto for the election as much as it is what is the Home Office's policy before then. And Francis, allies of Swella Braverman have called Sunak's plan magical thinking. Boris Johnson put forward his own plan. Could this get politically quite ugly for Sunak? Perhaps, although, I mean, I think what I've been struck most by this week is that the the, 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 the Braverman dog hasn't barked more loudly or more effectively. I mean, I'm just trying to think through what an election looks like if the plane, if a single plane hasn't taken off, which now looks more likely, and what it might do to whether they go in spring or autumn. Because, I mean, Reese is surely right. I mean, they, they would love this to be about the ECHR, but it's not necessarily, you know, and they'll have to punch through a few UK court decisions before they get there. And the Lords, I mean, will they have to Parliament act this? Didn't we learn from Brexit that the public's appetite for this kind of parliamentary shenanigans and, and blockages, I don't think it's quite there. It's not as strong. And, it, you know, it, 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 I can see that it that it works for the Conservative Party and that it shuts or at least suppresses reform. I don't think it does anything to attract switchers or reassure other elements of the base that are much less exercised by this particular issue. So again, coming in on the wake of uh, of the return of David Cameron, which to my mind signalled the end of any possibility that you run a change campaign in the election, this also doesn't look like it's fantastically good politics. Jill, what do you think? Do you agree? It's quite interesting because I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is Rishi Sunak's sort of selling point was he's a problem solver. And, you know, at the moment, he's failed to solve this problem. Uh, that's his real problem. I mean, he can point to things like the Albanian return scheme working really quite well. He may have a sort of, you know, a bit of a let off with terrible weather in the channel this winter. But as your man who you trust to solve problems, as you say, inflation, of which I'm sure we all hear a lot of next week in the autumn statement. So I get another bite at that. But this is at the moment in A, you said you could do this and you haven't. He appeared again with the Stop the Boats. He's failing to have a sort of realistic conversation with actually asylum is really difficult. Everybody is facing this problem. It's a really, really difficult long term thing to solve in a fair way and stuff like that. He gave the impression that he had a magic bullet and now he shot himself with it. The other reason I think that Jill is right there and that this is a self-inflicted wound by Sunak is he had the opportunity when he came, this, you know, this asylum policy was not his. It was pretty Patel and Boris Johnson who brought about the Rwanda deal and the Illegal Migration Act built on where the Nationality and Borders Act started. So he had a really good opportunity when he came in to take a bit of a pause and to reevaluate what he thought were the more plausible options to make progress before the election. He looks like he squandered it. 
And Reese, you know, you're our asylum policy expert at IFG. If he had taken that pause, what should he have done? What asylum policy should this government be pursuing? Well, there are there are several levers that this government have been unready and unwilling to to pull, and that our sort of political discussion more broadly is not as willing to debate. International agreements has got to be the centre of of any kind of collective and productive approach to this. As Jill just said, there the agreement with Albania has had an effect, and the numbers as they've come down on small boats look like that's been a consequence of a reduction in the number of people coming from Albania. But more broadly, agreements with the EU on returns is going to have to be part of the picture. Government could also learn from what's worked in this space from recent years. The quick relative success of Homes for Ukraine, for example, does suggest there might be more scope for community sponsorship schemes that go with the grain of political feeling and are maybe less divisive than some forms of asylum policy. Of course, no one's that willing at the moment to debate the expansion of legal controlled routes, but experts have suggested that that is one way in which you could maintain control over the system, for example, by a parliamentary vote on the numbers of asylum seekers you bring into the country, which is, you know, control is a a key issue for voters while addressing some of the, the crisis. And then more broadly, from a sort of meta level, I think what this last 24 hours has shown is there is a real desperate need for a more sustainable evidence base on what works on asylum policy. The problem with Rwanda has been based on quite ill-founded assumptions all the way through. We really need the government to invest in that evidence base and use it. Okay, the other big story, the connected story this week, has been the reshuffle and the fallout. Francis, have you ever seen a letter like Sweller Raverman's? <laughs> yes, not a resignation letter, but uh, <laughs> no, it, uh, it didn't do it for me. Um, <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it demeaned her. I think it's quite interesting because you assume that part of what Sweller Braverman has has an interest in is eyes on the sort of next leadership election and if you wanted to disqualify yourself over three pages that letter seemed to me to be one where you'd suddenly be raising your eyebrows about is this person a person whose finger I want anywhere near a nuclear button or whatever because it just came over as massively overwrought emotional and very, very strange. I mean, it's one of those letters that you used to get in private office when I worked there, which would usually come in in brown envelopes and green ink. <laughs> and it just, you know, and that's not a cabinet secretary, future prime minister vibe. I thought it was a really interesting contrast with another resignation letter we saw this week, which was Jess Phillips' resignation letter to Keir Starmer, which you thought actually, you know, it was a very emotive issue. She was resigning on fairly, feeling very, very conflicted, but she wrote something nice, loyal, short, clear, and you thought she'll be back on the front bench pretty soon. Uh, that looked, yeah, it was a miles away. So I thought Suella Bravman did her leadership ambitions absolutely no end of bad by the way in which she went. And one of the things she said in, in her letter was that she has a document and that she claims Sunak agreed to. Does it matter if it's true? Is that a problem for Sunak? I think it probably is. A, I, I, I'm fully expecting it to uh, appear in a Sunday newspaper any moment, uh, probably this weekend, I should imagine. I think it isn't a good look because it makes him look weak for signing it and weasley for breaking it. So, yeah, it is a problem. 
And we've got a new Home Secretary now. How is James Cleverly going to approach things? Do we think he's going to be a good Home Secretary? Is this a, a job that nobody wants, Reese? Well, I was struck by some tweets on the evening of he took the job where apparently the first thing he did is he gave his speech in the front desk to all the civil servants in which he stressed he wanted a much sort of closer, more trusting relationship with civil servants. He said he would be out there in public defending him and where criticisms were going to be made would, would make them in private. And I, I think while that sounds like an obvious message that you want to impart on your first day, desperately needed at the Home Office. Uh, mistrust between ministers and civil servants we've seen boil over in that department repeatedly over the last couple of years, including over frustrated messages about the Rwanda scheme, for example. If anywhere you want to go in and say, I'm on your side, I'll have your back if you have mine, it's the Home Office. So I thought that was a really quite smart first step. Jill, what do you think? Is that a good first move? I think that is a good first move and it's very notable how much he sort of lowered the temperature in the Foreign Office after a sort of succession of what you might call difficult foreign secretaries, Boris Johnson with obviously his own issues, then Liz Truss and Dominic Raab in between the two. So I think the Foreign Office had felt quite battered and found James Cleverly as somebody who was interested in the views of officials, would sort of listen to advice even if he didn't always take it. I think what's really interesting though about the talent around the Cabinet table was that it seems like a really bad time to move your foreign secretary because we have wars still going on in Ukraine plus the sort of conflict Israel-Palestine. So really, really difficult, bad time to be doing this. And yet uh, Rishi Sunak looking around couldn't find anyone else to move who he must have regarded as somebody who would be on roughly the same page as him on what to do on uh, Rwanda in the light of the upcoming court judgment. So I think it does show a bit of sort of lack of talent there that he didn't really feel there was anyone else he could bring into that role or maybe that he wanted to inflict that role on. Um, So it'd be very interesting to see what James Cleverly manages to achieve as Home Secretary. As Rhys saying, it's been a really troubled department over recent years and it'd be very interesting to see what his wider agenda is well, for the Home Office as well as just on illegal migration. There's big issues on legal migration where Suella Bravman signalled she was in conflict with the Prime Minister too on that. We know that that's what occasioned her previous sacking was when she was dissenting from this trust's policy on legal migration big problems with relationships with the police which we saw which we thought might have occasioned Suella Braverman's sacking last week so there's a whole range of issues sensitive issues for cleverly but he does seem to be actually one of the people emerging as one of the one of the sort of better operators in the government he certainly did a huge amount to improve UK relations with the EU partly by his personal investment of time in relations with Marishevkovic One of the other changes was around civil service reform, possibly a niche topic, but one that all of us love at the Institute for Government. And there was a big report out on civil service reform last week, but we also lost the minister who was meant to implement it. Yes, Yes. it was the day we've all been waiting for. It was the long awaited report publication of Lord Maud's report into the governance and accountability of the civil service. It was a really interesting, quite radical set of proposals, not just about the civil service, but also really about the centre of government more broadly. Um, We're digging into it in, you know, over at IFG Towers, it was a, but as you sort of hinted at there, Emma, it was a bit of a shame to see when the government put it out because my bet had been on the day before Christmas holidays, but they went for reshuffle day, which I think is a sign of their willingness to debate, you know, whether or not to split the treasury, the role of the head of the civil service and the cabinet secretary. 
And also it is quite a contrast with with where civil service reform sits in Cabinet. We saw Jeremy Quinn leave his role and and John Glenn come in. Again, that's quite a shame in the sense that Quinn had, uh, over the course of the year, set out some particular priorities that he thought he could make progress on with regards to digital skills in the civil service, recruitment into the civil service in the limited time he had before the election. That will obviously have to sort of that process will have to repeat itself. John Glenn will have to see which bits of Quinn's priorities he agrees with and which he wants to tweak. Um, so hopefully they'll take the Maud's report seriously and it will inform the shape of the debate as we go into the next parliament. And let's talk a bit more about the, the biggest surprise of the reshuffle, the return of David Cameron. Here's what Peter Mandelson had to say at an IFG event earlier this week. It may be that uh, with uh, David Cameron's sort of entry to the government, which, by the way, I rather warmly welcome in, I mean, who couldn't uh, welcome a sort of contrast, which is sort of in terms of ministerial calibre and quality, sort of night and day between David Cameron and Suela Braverman. Um, so, and, and by the way, he'll be not bad internationally because, you know, he's a big beast and people will recognise him for good or, or ill and we'll, in protocol terms, we'll sort of go up in the pecking order, as it were, uh, diplomatically when he walks into a room. Uh, not to exaggerate that, uh, obviously, uh, but I think it's worth something and better having than, than not. Francis, how surprised were you to see the return of David Cameron? I was stunned. Utterly, utterly stunned. It was a great coup d'etat. I'll give him that. You know, you can still keep a secret. I talked to, yeah, I talked to Henry Zeffman, who I think uh, there's a bit of a meme going around about uh, about how shocked he was. Um, <laughs> him and Kay uh, Burley. Yeah, yeah but and also like, you know, when it happened, it was like, I, I, I didn't rush to Twitter or X and say, this is, this is a terrible idea. I, I was genuinely, I, and I'm still a little unsure about what I think about it. I think what's forgotten is that Mandelson's return to the late Brown government absolutely stabilised that administration at a time it was, you know, it was in freefall. And I, I honestly don't think Labour could have denied Cameron an outright majority in 2010 had it not happened. Now, is this analogous? Probably not. Cameron doesn't have any kind of great track record uh, as an election strategist. I don't think it's exactly analogous, but you know that's what I was sort of sort of saying before. I think if you if if you had put together Cameron's return, grown up government, inflation halving, we've got on top of small boats, they might just have had a bit of momentum. What's interesting though is that the relationships were quite different, weren't they? I mean, Mandelson and Brown famously didn't get on an understatement, but they did come from the same wing of the Labour Party. They were both, you know, deeply committed to to the reform of the party. Actually, Sunak and Cameron are very different, aren't they? They don't come from the same wing of the Conservative Party in the same way. I was wondering that. I, I mean, I'm not sure I know what Sunak's real politics are. I'm not sure, I, you know. I mean, Ca- Cameron won because he was a moderniser that traditionalists could live with. And, and, and you know, he was polite to old people and, you know, had sherry before lunch and yet also kind of hugged hoodies, you know. And Sunak won because he was a, a, a sort of Brexiteer that the One Nationers could just about stomach. I mean, they're not that dissimilar, I don't think. I don't think there's a there's a vast ideological difference. They're both, they're both kind of pragmatist, 
who think, you know, who, who, who style themselves as sensible chaps who can problem solve, um, whether, you know, obviously we will not rule on whether that's true or not. But, but anyway, no, I, I dispute the premise that they're very different. Jill? I mean, the big difference, obviously, is on Brexit, where uh, it was rumoured to be when Rishi Sunak came out for Brexit as a sort of young, ambitious, newly elected MP that David Cameron started to realise he might have a bit more of a problem in winning the referendum than he did. And I think this is one of the things that's really quite interesting. So about David Cameron's reappointment. So undoubtedly, Rishi Sunak's brought back somebody, a very recognisable figure, sort of big beast. You know, he's already taken a phone call from Anthony Blinken, who probably didn't need the briefing on who the hell is this sort of obscure person that I've never heard of, that the UK has now made foreign secretary. I mean, he obviously didn't because Andrew Blinker was a big player in the um, Obama-Biden administration when David Cameron was prime minister. He's been to see Vladimir Zelensky, who also probably didn't need a briefing about who on earth is this guy. So we've got this sort of big hitter. But there's a lot of interesting debate going on about actually how good was David Cameron at foreign policy? Uh, If you look, I mean, I think you could sum it up uh, to paraphrase with he got the big calls wrong and got them almost all wrong. Uh, So I think it's quite interesting. Rory Stewart is sort of viscerally furious about this on uh, another podcast, which I don't think gets any ratings at all, But so no one will have listened to. But I think it's really interesting is how good is his judgment. I think there's a really interesting other issue, which is how does he play Europe? Uh, Europe is one of the areas of the scene of his biggest misjudgments. He alienated Angela Merkel by making what David Davis says was an unnecessary commitment to win the party leadership, to take the Conservatives out of the European People's Party. He misjudged it when he tried to veto the sort of fiscal pact in 2011. He misjudged his renegotiation. He misjudged whether he could veto uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. I mean, he got the Europe wrong, wrong, wrong. So I think it's apart from misjudging the mood in the country. So I think it's a really interesting call. And does Europe say, oh, thank goodness, we've got a sensible, urbane, big hitter joining us? Or does Europe look and say... Well, this is the guy that inflicted seven years of British psychodrama on us when we had other big things going on, arguably gave comfort to Vladimir Putin because Europe became very disunited, focused internally rather than externally. And that's before you get on to China, where I think you know, a lot of the conservative China hawks have really big reservations about David Cameron's willingness to do business on behalf of China and his quite transactional approach. So I think it's a really interesting thing. And whether all these things went through Rishi Sunak's mind before he appointed him is a really interesting question. We know that the appointment was mooted a bit of time before, but how did he weigh the pluses and minuses of reviving David Cameron as opposed to trying to persuade William Hague, maybe he did that, or indeed asking Theresa May if she fancied a time back at the cabinet table. She at least is still in Parliament. And what about involving former Prime Ministers in this way? Is it a good thing that former Prime Ministers like Cameron are willing to get back involved? or does them having occupied that particular role present its own set of challenges? I generally think it's quite a good thing because I think particularly when we've chewed through cabinet ministers at the particular rate of knots we have to actually bring somebody who's been around, got a bit of um, experience. I think Rishi Sunak's problem is 
I on the IFG podcast on Monday, Fraser Nelson, when I was doing radio with him on Tuesday, both referred to David Cameron as Prime Minister rather than Rishi Sunak because that seems to come a bit more naturally because he was Prime Minister for a lot longer. So I think it'd be very interesting to see whether they can make that relationship really work in practice. You know, and how does David Cameron play that? Has he got the emotional intelligence? probably has to know how to be helpful and supportive without overshadowing Sunak. So I think that's one one set of issues. But I think as a general proposition, it's quite good. I think it's a shame that our departing prime ministers decide to leave parliament so quickly. And as I said, actually, would it have totally surprised me if Theresa May had popped back up into the cabinet? Uh, not necessarily. And actually, I think one of the question marks about David Cameron and would be question marks well if Keir Starmer were ever tempted to offer Foreign Secretary Tony Blair is quite what he's been up to while he's been out of government. There's also a practical point about bringing a big beast in from the Lords for a Foreign Office job and the IFG's Ministers Reflect archive all these uh, brilliant interviews with ministers once they've left government. Lots of those who have been in the Foreign Office reflect on how difficult it is to balance the foreign travel requirements of those jobs with managing the constituency and their commitments to Parliament. So actually having a big beast who's done that but can do it from the Lords probably makes it quite a lot easier, might free up some space for him to take on more of the agenda and to take a bit of that weight away from Sunak. And Reese, the other big story in the reshuffle, of course, has just been changed. Lots more change. I think we're on to our what our sixteenth housing minister since twenty ten now, and we've had established names stepping down. Change all over the place. Are civil servants tearing their hair out at this point? It's definitely been one of the stories of the last few years, and I think you could tell that by the extent to which the IFG's chart showing the housing ministers over the last 13 years was going viral on Twitter as the reshuffle played out. Uh, we saw the exit from government of quite established figures as well. Jesse Norman, Neil O'Brien, Jeremy Quinn, I've already mentioned, Nick Gibb, who was schools minister for about 450 years, <laughs> and um, a few others. Uh, it, it does have a real effect on the running of government. You know, civil servants will reflect not just on the consequences for ministers that want to take policies in different directions, but just the time it takes to get ministers up and running with a brief. And so, yes, it has a real effect. But on the other hand, the one thing, the sort of caveat to that is that we were always expecting a pre-election reshuffle. I think that's quite normal. I think the test is, is this the team that Rishi Sunak is comfortable going into the election with? Are we going to see more change or is this it now? And we shouldn't forget Labourer in this. Um, Keir Starmer injured a very difficult night in the Commons last night. Jill, you referred to uh, Jess Phillips' resignation letter. Francis, how bad was last night for, for Keir Starmer? Uh, not as bad as it could have been. He's a lucky man. He's a lucky man. I mean, in, in any other kind of news environment, it would be a much bigger story. Uh, so I would, I would say I'd have that on a Beaufort level five to six. Jill, do you agree? Five to six? No higher? I think we'll have to see what happens, but uh, it's not sort of the biggest news this week. And that's very good news, as Francis was saying, for Keir Starmer. And that's it for today. Thank you to Jill Rutter, Reese Klein, and especially to Francis Elliott. Thanks very much for being with us. Head to our website to catch up with our event with Sir Mark Rowley, a great event we held earlier this week featuring Peter Mandelson, all our reshuffle reaction, some brand new ministers reflect interviews with former government whips, and Reese's reaction to the Rwanda verdict. Next week, it's the Autumn Statement, so make sure you follow all our expert analysis on the Chancellor's announcement and tune into our event the following day with a great panel, including the OBR's Richard Hughes. And if you can't wait for that, 
then check out the next episode of Expert Factor. This is our new podcast with IFS and UK in a changing Europe. And this week is a special autumn statement preview. You can find the Expert Factor with all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and leave us a review. See you next week, everyone.